The National Archives podcast series, The Cabinet Papers, 1915 to 1979, presented by Mark Dunton. Hello everyone and thank you very much for coming this afternoon. Um, so the subject of my talk, The Cabinet Papers, 1915 to 1979. And um, first of all, um, I just want to give you an outline of uh, how I'm going to uh, tackle this subject. Um, we start then, I'm going to just begin at, with the basics. What is the cabinet? Um, then move on to talk a bit about its historical development, which is actually, I find, a very interesting subject. And uh, then we're going to just uh, touch on some practicalities, like uh, when does the cabinet meet, um, and so forth. I'd then like to talk a little bit about the Cabinet Secretary, who is a very uh, influential figure um, at the uh, heart of government, and uh, then look at the uh, collective responsibility issue before moving on to look at the main record series and then at the sort of um, the heart of this talk really I want to demonstrate to you the cabinet papers website which uh, I believe is a really great resource and I'm really keen to encourage people to uh, to make good use of it then I'm going to look to just sort of take you through some interesting document examples um, which um, I think you'll uh, I think you'll definitely find them interesting and then We'll move to conclusions. So that's the outline of the talk, and um, I'd be very happy to um, take questions at the end. You know, perhaps we can have a bit of discussion. Um, so I shall now proceed. Okay. The cabinet. Um, what is it? Well, the cabinet is the committee at the very centre of the British political system, and the term cabinet is the collective name given to the members of the senior executive element of central government in Britain. The cabinet members are politicians appointed to office by the Crown and nominated by the Prime Minister, and they're usually in charge of major government departments. As well as selecting the members of the cabinet, the Prime Minister chairs its meetings. And by its very nature, really, the cabinet is obliged to consider issues of national importance. Since 1856, government cabinets have met in the same room, which was referred to as the council chamber. So, what are the origins of the cabinet? To a large extent, its precise origins are shrouded in the mists of time, but one thing is certain, it is bound up with the history of the monarchy and the fact that, as John Mackintosh puts it, the kings of England have always had advisers. From the beginnings of Parliament, councillors were present to relay the, the wishes of the sovereign to both houses of Parliament. The modern history of the Cabinet began in the 17th century as a committee of the Privy Council, and it consisted of a small group of advisers to the monarch. The name of this sort of prototype Cabinet changed over time, by the 1690s, these special insiders were being described as lords of the committee, and the term cabinet 
was increasingly in use. Of course, the 17th century had seen a uh, huge struggle for power between the Crown and Parliament, the English Civil War. Patrick Gordon Walker um, saw the Cabinet as the 18th century solution to this power struggle, a mechanism which allowed a new balance to be struck between the Crown and Parliament. As Peter Hennessy puts it, bit by bit the problem of the monarch diminished as the king ceased to attend cabinet, investing, as it were, the cabinet with the authority of the crown by putting his powers into commission. So the sovereign was excluded, gradually excluded, from direct involvement in political affairs. John McIntosh has written that, for practical purposes, after 1717, the cabinet ceased to be a body meeting with the king though he does point out that George III did make some appearances at Cabinet after 1717, the last one being in 1784. The uh, evolution of the Cabinet into the centrepiece of the British political system was a gradual process. But even though its importance at the pinnacle of government was firmly established by the mid-19th century, it continued with some amateurish methods right up to the First World War, or up to 1916, to be specific. Now, here is a fact that, um, you know, might well seem surprising. In his um, excellent book, The Cabinet Office to 1945, S.S. Wilson explains that until 1916, cabinets had met without an agenda and without a secretary, and ministers took executive action on their recollection or understanding of what they had decided. And it does seem rather extraordinary to us now. Um, so prior to 1916, the only record of cabinet decisions was contained in letters written by the Prime Minister to the Sovereign after each meeting. You know, Wilson comments that the content of these letters vary greatly. He says, from the flowery effusions of Disraeli to the terse comments of Campbell Bannerman. So these letters were private and the absence of a written record of decisions taken at cabinet meetings could lead to confusion and misunderstandings. The origins of the cabinet secretariat and all the modern procedures of the cabinet can be traced to the First World War. I'd like to read you an extract from a book called A Man and an Institution by Professor John F. Naylor. I quote, as the debacle at, at the Somme ground to a halt in the chilling autumn rains and the squalid muck of the battlefield, the Allied leaders gathered in Paris in mid-November 1916 to assess the military situation. Two men who shared growing doubts about the British role in the war took a stroll before a morning session of the conference, exchanging views about their country's contribution. One of them was the well-known and controversial politician, David Lloyd George. He was Secretary of State for War at this time. And the other, 
hardly a public figure, was Lieutenant Colonel Morris Hankey, a leading military advisor to the government who had served as a secretary to the, to the pre-war Committee of Imperial Defence and during the war as secretary to the three committees which had in turn worked with questions of military policy for the cabinet. According to Lloyd George's recollection, during this stroll, during this walk, uh, Hankey suggested to him that he should insist on a small war committee being set up for the day-to-day -day conduct of the war with full power. Hankey and Lloyd George were very concerned about the creaking, antiquated mechanisms of government which were straining under the demands of modern warfare. The cabinet had been encumbered in its conduct of the war by its large size, structural obstacles, various, uh, there were various committees that it dealt with, um, and ponderous deliberations. The new thinking was that small cabinets would speed up decisions that were urgently needed. Clear-cut channels in terms of communications and structures were also needed to improve coordination across government. Professor Naylor states that no two men did more to bring cabinet government into the 20th century than Lloyd George and Hankey. The turning point came when Herbert Asquith resigned as Prime Minister on the 5th of December 1916 and Lloyd George became Prime Minister on the 7th of December. He immediately formed a war cabinet, initially of five members, and by the 9th of December he had appointed Hankey uh, as, as Secretary to the War Cabinet. And there was a revolution in the operation of government. In the words of Professor Peter Hennessy, in the space of a week in December 1916, Lloyd George and Sir Maurice Hankey streamlined the cabinet system along the lines pioneered by the Committee of Imperial Defence. For the first time, systematic records of cabinet business were maintained on an official basis. This meant the recording of decisions, and in many cases, the recording of how decisions were reached. Cabinet minutes had arrived. Actually, there is a footnote to add here. In the mid-1920s, Hankey was delighted to discover that there were some historical precedents for cabinet minutes. There were some irregular minutes of a sort which had been made in George III's time. Um, ministers sometimes sent the king a, a, a minute of cabinet. Um, Hankey, through his research, traced some earlier precedents. But 1916 still really marks the beginning of systematic and proper cabinet minutes. So Hankey was the first cabinet secretary, a post that he held until 1938. And he was a highly gifted and very capable operator, and he had extraordinary qualities. There is a wonderful quotation from Sir Robert Vansittart, permanent secretary at the Foreign Office in the 1930s, that Peter Hennessy uses to illustrate this, and I quote, a secretary was admitted to the arcana and it was Maurice Hankey who progressively became secretary of everything that mattered. A marine of slight stature and tireless industry, he grew into a repository of secrets, a chief inspector of mines of information. He had an incredible memory, an official brand which could re reproduce on call the date, file, substance of every paper that ever flew into a pigeonhole. If St. Peter is as well served 
there will be no errors on Judgment Day. Hankey, uh, as Cabinet Secretary, he began the practice of taking the minutes or conclusions at the meetings of the Cabinet. But it was not feasible for him to act entirely as a one-man band. A Cabinet Secretariat was also needed for administrative support in order to circulate memoranda, that's papers for discussion at Cabinet meetings, this was needed really to circulate these papers to members of the Cabinet and its subcommittees and to be responsible for the safekeeping of papers created out of the business of the executive. So a Cabinet Secretariat developed to give this administrative support. It also had a role in ensuring good communications between the War Cabinet and the government departments tasked with implementing, government, with implementing Cabinet decisions. And although there were moves to abolish it in 1922, after the uh, fall of Lloyd George's coalition government, it survived and it did become then established on, an, on a permanent footing. Just a word about the size of the cabinet. As mentioned, Lloyd, Lloyd George's war cabinet initially consisted of five to six members, but in reality, large numbers were often invited to cabinet meetings and not all of them were ministers. If there was a burning issue, attendance could sometimes rise as high as 35. But the War Cabinet did sometimes meet as a small body. Lloyd George's post-war cabinet had 20 members. The size of the cabinet varied according to the practices of each premiership. According to the Number 10 website, present-day cabinet meetings are attended by 22 paid ministers and one, and one unpaid minister appointed to cabinet and six other invited ministers and peers. On to practicalities. When does the cabinet meet? The cabinet normally meets every Tuesday at Downing Street when parliament is sitting. That is the present day arrangement. It tends to meet more frequently as you might expect during crises. The cabinet meetings are chaired by the Prime Minister or a deputy in his or her absence and the meetings allow members to be briefed on the activities of their colleagues' departments and to reach collective decisions on government policy for presentation to Parliament. As we've learnt, it's the Cabinet Secretary, the head of the Cabinet Secretariat, who attends meetings of the Cabinet and normally takes the minutes or conclusions. But the Cabinet Secretary is not purely the taker of the minutes, important though this is. He or she can be a very influential figure in government. Let's look at this role in more detail. But in fact, before we do, a nice piece of poetry quoted in S.S. Wilson's The Cabinet Office to 1945. Now that the Cabinet's gone to its dinner, the Secretary stays and gets thinner and thinner, racking his brains to record and report what he thinks, what they think they ought to have thought. So, the Cabinet Secretary, he is the senior civil servant in charge of the Cabinet Office. That's the government department that provides administrative support to the Prime Minister, the Cabinet and the Government generally. And since 1981, the position of Cabinet Secretary has also been combined with Head of the Home Civil Service. The responsibilities of this job have varied over the years, 
and personality factors can influence this. The personalities or different approaches of successive prime ministers and cabinet secretaries. The cabinet secretary can be a very um, influential figure indeed, with their influence extending far beyond administrative matters, reaching to the very heart of the decision-making process. For instance, the cabinet secretary is responsible for administering the ministerial code, which, conduct, which um, governs the conduct of ministers. The cabinet secretary can be called upon to investigate leaks within government and enforce cabinet discipline. The cabinet secretary often provides briefing memos for the prime minister to advise him about order of business at meetings, so the whole business, you know, the setting of the cabinet agenda, and particular points that need to um, be discussed, and the most desirable outcome. So there's a certain amount of, you know, there's some steering in these briefings that he gives. He also acts as a gatekeeper for the Prime Minister, controlling and filtering incoming correspondence and appointments with the Prime Minister. This list shows all the Cabinet Secretaries for the period covered by our holdings of Cabinet Papers, which currently extend to 1979. Um, so we have Colonel Morris Hankey, um, very long period of tenure there, 1916 to 1938. Sir Edward Bridges, 1938 to 46. Sir Norman Brooke, 47 to 62. Sir Burke Trend, 63 to 73. Sir John Hunt, 73 to 79. And Sir Robert Armstrong, 79 to 88. And I suppose, of course, straight away, it strikes you how few they've been, really, over such a long period. Um, Hankey's length of service remains unsurpassed. They all have their different styles and I'll refer to one or two in particular when I show you some examples of cabinet documents. The present cabinet secretary is Sir Gus O'Donnell. In fact, just so that we are accurate, uh, there were some additional sort of arrangements in the sort of 45 to 47 period uh, where you had these additional secretaries. General Sir Hastings Ismay and Sir Norman Brooke shown there. Now I'm going to move on and just talk briefly about the, the, uh, the, the whole subject of collective responsibility and dissent. The Cabinet takes decisions by collective agreements and ministers who could not support decisions agreed by the majority of the Cabinet would normally be expected to resign. However, while members were expected to support decisions made in Cabinet, dissent may be recorded on rare occasions without involving resignations. Another point about all of this is that the conclusions and minutes do not contain a record of voting. Now one of the most dramatic resignations ever was when Defence Secretary Michael Hesseltine stormed out of a cabinet meeting on the 9th of January 1986 over a disagreement concerning the future of the Westland Helicopter Company. And I think, remember this myself, there were some camera crews outside just sort of hanging around and he suddenly kind of stormed out and uh, had a sort of little kind of impromptu press conference, I believe, with the mayor in uh, Downing Street before having a sort of further press conference later on. But it was a very dramatic moment. So, minutes and conclusions. I just want to um, draw out something about these. Until 1919, 
minutes, that's a personalised record of who said what, were taken of Cabinet meetings. But from 1919 onwards, only conclusions, so that's a sort of impersonal record, were taken, designed really to record agreement and sort of reflecting that whole sort of collective responsibility theme that I've mentioned. Although, in practice, the terms minutes and conclusions tend to be used interchangeably, so that's perhaps rather a technical distinction in a way. Although, even taking into account the qualifier that, you know, talking about the impersonal nature of the minutes, actually the cabinet papers are still a rich source for the modern historian and they still have the capacity to surprise us, as I hope to show you with some later document examples. And in fact, not all the content is necessarily impersonal. So what are the main record series? Well, prior to 1916, um, remember that I said that prior to 1916, the only record of cabinet decisions were contained in letters written by the Prime Minister to the Sovereign after each meeting. Now, these are the record series. Cab 37 is the Cabinet Office photographic copies of Cabinet Papers, 1880 to 1916. So that's a collection of photographic copies of memoranda circulated to the Cabinet. The letters written to the Sovereign, there are photographic copies of those in Cab 41 from 1868 to 1916. I think the originals are at the Royal Archive. So, further record series. Minutes and Conclusions, these are the three main series. Uh, Cab 23, 1916 to 39. Cab 65, covering the Second World War period. And Cab 128, from 1945 upwards and, of course, still accruing. And then you've got these parallel series in the memoranda. 1915 to 39, Cab 24. 1939 to 45, Cab 66. And 1945 onwards, Cab 129. So you see some of the papers discussed by the Cabinet do actually predate 1916, going back to 1915. I just wanted to make some comments about Cab 23 for the First World War period, because in fact there are some complications in, in the way that the papers are arranged in different sequences. And I'd like to just make a few points about this. Without wishing to sound critical in any way, really, of the superb work of Sir Maurice Hankey as War Cabinet Secretary, these were early days in terms of cabinet office administration. It took some time for the mechanics of paper keeping to settle down. And also, another point is that um, there was a really strong concern for secrecy. This was particularly acute in the war years. For example, I've seen a note by Hankey stating, Prime Minister instructed me not to circulate this for the present. So this concern for secrecy led to complications in the ways that different types of minutes were filed in different sequences. And of course that does give a bit more opportunity for the odd paper to have gone astray at the time. Some of the minutes were not even typed and exist in manuscript form. Another point is that, you know, it's just all the pressures of war on a scale never before experienced by a British government. The evolving cabinet secretariat would have obviously been inundated with work and a very high volume of papers. Some secretariat staff were out of the country at times, attending international conferences. All these factors may have contributed to the complicated arrangement of the papers in the First World War period, and that also actually, um, that is also true to some extent for Cab 24, the memoranda as well. These reasons can help to explain possible gaps 
The imperfect state of the papers reflects the ways in which the evolving cabinet secretariat worked and the pressures that the staff were under. Having said that, though, taking CAB 23 as a whole, I think it's fair to say that, despite all the difficulties, the Secretariat managed to achieve an impressive degree of order in records of the 635 meetings of the War Cabinet contained in CAB 23. It just took a bit of time for things to bed down, which did happen by the early 1920s or so. Something that you uh, see sometimes mentioned uh, in lists of these records Confidential annexes. Well, this is National Archives' way of describing something called the Secretary's Standard File. In the series CAB 65, for example, Cabinet conclusions can include references to discussions being recorded separately in the Secretary's Standard File of War Cabinet conclusions. These are the confidential annexes, which have their own separate sequences and I should be showing you at least one example of one of those later. Also, it's quite useful to know that there are certain classifications for cabinet minutes or conclusions. So there's WC for War Cabinet Conclusions, and then there's CM, Cabinet Minutes, and sometimes you get CC, Cabinet Conclusions, and so on. They're kind of varied a bit over the different premierships, in agreement with the Prime Minister of the day. Another series I want to mention are the Cabinet Secretary's Notebooks, CAB 195. Now these are the handwritten notes which the Cabinet Secretary makes when he attends Cabinet meetings as the Senior Secretary. And they are longhand notebooks. So they've been compiled by um, the various Secretaries, Edward Bridges, Norman Brooke, Burke Trend, John Hunt, Robert Armstrong, at cabinet meetings and also some other meetings of ministers during their respective terms of office. They begin in 1942 and these notebooks provide more detailed accounts of the meetings than appear in the printed records. These records were subject to extended closure but they're now being released in batches. I think at the present we're up to about 1962 with these. Um, these records are released via the Cabinet Papers, well they are released actually on the Cabinet Papers website, yes, and they, they do sit on documents online, so they will all be incorporated into the Cabinet Papers website, that's right, as we go. They are closer to a verbatim account of who said what, although again they do vary a bit according to the style of the Cabinet Secretary. Quite a few of them are written in a very kind of clipped style, but nonetheless they can be interesting. So now I want to move on to uh, show you a bit about the Cabinet Papers website. And the Cabinet Papers project was led by the National Archives and funded under the Joint Information Systems Committee, JISC, J-I-S-C. It was under their digitisation programme. J-I-S-C, this is a joint committee of the UK further and higher education funding bodies supporting the innovative use of ICT to facilitate learning, teaching and research. And the Cabinet Papers project offers really a major kind of resource, educational resource, and it opens up the records in new ways to students and the wider public. It provides online access to the minutes and memoranda of Cabinet meetings which currently range from 1915 to 79. And the digitisation also includes the Cabinet Secretary's notebooks one of the great things about this resource is that the search function has optical character recognition. 
So it actually reads the contents of documents. If you do keyword searches, it'll search the contents of the documents and provide you with lots of hits quite often and then steer you right into where you need to go, which can actually save a student or anyone with a general interest a lot of time. So at this point, this is where I want to demonstrate it. The, the address is simply our website address and then forward slash cabinet papers. General advice about the website, it is, it's, it's actually quite similar to advice that I often give, well, virtually every day here really, to people about the catalogue, which is basically best to keep it simple, particularly initially. You know, so for example, if a student happened to be researching the issue of defence cuts in 1976, which was quite a big issue at that time, well, they could start by just perhaps using the word defence initially, restricting it to 76, and that will give them quite a lot of hits, actually. But then um, they wanted to narrow it down. You just have to think a bit laterally about what terms are likely to work. So defence expenditure is a fairly good bet, and that will give nine hits. And, and it's just this sort of thinking, you know, just thinking what is likely to come, likely to be successful. When I do searches in this, I tend to use, yeah, this box sometimes for really broad searching. And I use that box quite a lot. I don't normally use that one so much, at least with one of the words. Um, but, you know, I suppose you can always experiment. And of course, you can also restrict. I mean, you don't necessarily have to search right across all the documents. You can uh, tick, a, tick one of the boxes if you want them to just search in a particular area. It is just this business of thinking what is likely to be successful. And phrases that are now common today won't necessarily work in this for various reasons. So say, for example, right, if I put in the exact phrase, winter of discontent, and if I make that 1978 to 1979, there's just two results, and these are not hits in the documents. They are hits where the winter of discontent is mentioned in some background information on the website. But of course, you know, all you need to do is just think about it. Ministers at the time would not have liberally, particularly in the Labour government, would not have been liberally using that phrase, you know. Um, you know now, you know, agenda item six, winter of discontent. Uh, so, of course, it's not likely, that's not really likely to work. So what is more, much more likely to work is a phrase like um, industrial action or industrial uh, strife, yes, something like that. And that is much more likely to, uh, to work. In, I think industrial action, if you do that, you'll get somewhere in the region of 57, yeah, 57 results. Furthermore, if we go back to the home page of the Cabinet Papers, there is actually information about the Cabinet itself. So you click on there, Government Who's Who, you get all the different administrations, and if you click on any one of them, get a bit of background, and then you get a list of all the Cabinet members who held which position and for what dates. And um, of course this is information that you can find in, in bibliographical books, but it's very handy to have it online here. There's also a unique map resource which shows called Maps in Time. Now, um, what this shows, the changing sort of boundaries over time. So if we go to different periods, you see boundaries changing so there's lots of information actually packed in here and it covers the whole world. So, you know, it's, it's uh, an interesting resource. Also, 
there are themes that you can browse by. So, for example, Total War is then, you've got these sort of subheadings, so you can click on the Western Front, and then there are related documents, you know, the Battle of the Somme, some cabinet conclusions relating to that, and, and so forth. I mean, this is brilliant for students. I mean, okay, quite a lot of this is pitched at A-level students, but really I think it would be of interest to a, an even wider audience as well. It's great for students, great for anyone with a general interest in history. So a lot of the sort of these kind of key themes, you know, United Kingdom and the world, the economy, business and resources, the welfare state, there are many, many creation of the health service, you know, there are very many links that you can follow up if you wish. So I think hopefully that's sort of demonstrated to you what a good resource that can be. And now I'm going to move on, keeping my eye on the time. So some document examples. Now, Sir Edward Bridges was Cabinet Secretary from 1938 to 46, and this example appears to be his work. And it's from a section of confidential annexes and notes for a particular War Cabinet minute. And it seems that um, Bridges had a very playful sense of humour. In fact, I think Peter Hennessy says that um, it was Bridges' style to sort of punch um, colleagues in the stomachs quite often and say, I say, isn't this fun? You know, <laughs> referring to some cabinet paper or whatever. Um, that, that certainly wasn't everybody's style. Uh, but uh, I'm sure that this is his work. And um, he seems, as, as I say, he seems to have a very playful sense of humour. I'll just read this to you. The Prime Minister in very good form, this is on the 7th of February 1940, the Prime Minister in very good form in recounting the fifth meeting of the Supreme War Council, which had obviously gone with a swing. Nobody seemed to be much alarmed as, as to Sir Stafford Cripps's peregrinations. In fact, it seemed to be thought that if he returned to this country and began cracking up the Soviet, there would be some jolly fun for the government. But Lord Privy Sill said with gusto that he had not done much harm in India, where he, Sir Stafford, had had a row with Nehru. So this is, as you can see, all about... This is a reference to Sir Stafford Cripps's visit to Moscow at this time. And, of course, Sir Stafford Cripps, well, he was on a personal visit to Moscow, which hadn't actually been approved by the Cabinet. And he was making some diplomatic moves of his own at this time. But, of course, the whole thing was a very sensitive area because uh, of the Russian invasion of Finland, which had happened on the 30th of November, 1939. And uh, so, yes, it's a very light-hearted sort of memo. And later on, he, uh, Stafford Cripps, became uh, ambassador to Moscow, actually, just a little bit later, um, I think in 42. But uh, it's just the tone of this, and there are others as well. And a colleague has said to me, you know, in a way, it's a bit like uh, carry-on cabinet when you see some of them. Uh, there is a, there, there's another extract I've seen which starts something like, um, it was the most coffee housing of all our meetings. A quaint phrase, you know. We talked about everything under the sun, it says. Just that very um, relaxed way of talking. Of course, that entry was from the sort of so-called phony war period. But by late May, May 1940, the situation had changed dramatically. Indeed, messages don't get much more dramatic than this. This is an extract from a message received from General Joseph Wieleman, France's Commander-in-Chief of Air Forces, dated the 31st of May 1940. 
At this time, the evacuation of British forces at Dunkirk was continuing. The Battle of France was entering its critical phase. And Villamine was asking the RAF to send more fighter squadrons to France in large numbers and for 20 squadrons to operate from French bases. There were repeated requests such as this from Villamine and the French Prime Minister Paul Renault during the Battle of France. So he says, I have the honour to beg of you to intervene with the British High Command in the most forceful manner in order that they should make a decision as early as possible in conformity with the suggestions of this notice. It is for the French army and in consequence for both countries a question of life or death. Now, so the cabinet minutes are peppered with these kind of requests in May and the first half of June 1940. Churchill, having taken advice from his chiefs of staff, ultimately refused to send significant additional RAF squadrons to France for fear of leaving Britain exposed to attack by the Luftwaffe, though he didn't take that decision lightly. France's appeals for extra assistance become more and more forceful and things get more and more heated and the cabinet papers capture this highly dramatic nature of these events at this time. Also, this example shows that the cabinet papers can include memos and telegrams generated by third parties, particularly in wartime, not just material generated by members of the cabinet. We now move to July 1940. The Battle of Britain is underway and the invasion scare reaches its, its zenith. And on the 10th of July, the War Cabinet asks the Home Secretary, the Secretary of State for War and the Minister of Information to produce a revised draft statement regarding the duties of the civil population in the event of, in, of an invasion. And this is a draft of a leaflet based on this statement. Now, reading a document such as this transports you to this extraordinary time when Britain stood alone. And I'll just read a little bit of it. Draft leaflet on invasion. Stay put. If this island is invaded by sea or air, everyone who is not under orders must stay where he or she is. This is not simply advice, it is an order from the government, and you must obey it just as soldiers obey their orders. Your order is stay put, but remember, this does not apply until invasion comes. And then, you know, I quite like in a way, there's just a, it's just faintly amusing in a way, Despite the, I know it's very grave, I know it's at a very grave time, but it's just these questions like, why must I stay put? You know? <laughs> and then that question is nicely answered, you know. Um, and they, well, actually, no, they explain on a serious note, you know, they explain about what happened in France and Holland and Belgium, what happened to refugees. And they're obviously concerned that this could be repeated, you know, and that people could get caught in the uh, crossfire. And, uh, and then... <laughs> There's another one. What will happen to me if I don't stay put? You will stand a very good chance of being killed. You know, obviously, it's quite persuasive. Uh, uh, yeah. the, the, uh, the enemy may machine gun you from the air in order to increase panic, or you may run into enemy forces which have landed behind you. You know, either way, it's a pretty bleak prospect. But um, actually, the, the leaflet does go on to say that if small parties are going about threatening persons and property in an area not under enemy control and come your way, you have the right of every man and woman to protect yourself, your family, and your home. Now, I'm moving on through the decades to 1955. 
this is an example of a cabinet secretary's notebook showing a significant exchange between Churchill and Eden. And the background is as follows. For years, Anthony Eden, Deputy Prime Minister and Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, had waited with growing impatience for Churchill to resign and hand over the premiership to him. On the 8th of March 1955, Churchill fixed the date for his resignation as April the 5th though this was not shared with all colleagues and it wasn't announced publicly. However, just after that, there came a suggestion from the United States that President Eisenhower would visit Paris in May to ratify the London-Paris agreements, which established the Western European Union, bringing in West Germany and Italy into that. And it was also indicated that Eisenhower was interested in a four-power meeting with the Soviet Union, Union later in the summer to reduce tensions. Now that idea chimed in with a grand design that Churchill had been nurturing for some time. And he began to think of delaying his resignation so he could take part in the proposed summit, meaning, of course, more frustration for Eden. Tensions between Churchill and Eden peaked in a cabinet meeting of the 14th of March. This is an extract from the cabinet secretary's notebook account, which gives some idea of the atmosphere of the meeting. The cabinet secretary at this time was Norman Brooke, and his notes and minutes show him to be a model of discretion. However, you don't really need to read between the lines to see the tension here, I quote. So you've got Rab Butler saying, promise of ease arrival, that's Eisenhower, and prospect of four-power meeting will be much more useful to us in May election than earlier arrival of Eisenhower, and certain Russian refusal of four-power meeting. Anthony Eden, RPM's plans off if Eisenhower is likely to come to Europe later in the summer? PM Churchill, a new situation. I should have to consider my public duty. Anthony Eden, if I am not com competent to meet Eisenhower then, that would rule for all time. So, you can certainly see the tension. According to um, Harold Macmillan's account in his diary, the exchange in reality was even more dramatic than this, with Eden, Eden stating, I have been foreign minister for 10 years. Am I not to be trusted? Or I am not to be trusted, I think is how he put it. Another problem was that several cabinet colleagues did not know of the PM's plans, i.e. the plan to resign, at all. This was the first they'd heard of it. So they were put out, embarrassed, puzzled as well. It all made for a very awkward meeting. Now, in the event the proposal for a meeting with Russia was not pursued by the US, the crisis blew over and Churchill resigned on the April the 5th as planned, handing over the premiership to Anthony Eden. Yeah, but it does give you some idea of the way that these cabinet secretary notebooks quite often go. They're quite sort of clipped, but you can, you know, you can pick up things from them, definitely. Now, moving on again uh, to 1974, hung parliament situation, 1st of March, 74. The general election of the 28th of February, 1974, called by Prime Minister Edward Heath, gave no party an overall majority. And although the Conservative Party had won almost a quarter, a quarter of a million more votes than Labour, Labour won uh, 301 seats, 
to the Conservatives, 297. The Liberals had 14 seats, an increase of three, but they did achieve 19% of the national vote. I think it was about six million votes. Heath did not immediately tender his resignation. He called a cabinet meeting, and this is an extract from the minutes of that meeting. Again, we get a sense of the drama of the moment. The results are actually still coming in. So it just, just to read you a little bit, um, it begins, the Prime Minister said that the result of the general election was disappointing for the government and was also confusing to interpret. Although a number of results were still outstanding, it was clear that no one party would, help, would be able to command an overall majority. And uh, the Labour Party could not get more than 301 seats and the Conservatives might obtain as many as 299. And it was difficult to forecast where the Liberals and other small parties would stand in such a situation. Indeed, the position was one without precedent in recent times. And he then goes on to explain, well, what are the options? And really, essentially, Heath is asking the Cabinet for their support to negotiate with the Liberal Party, led by Jeremy Thorpe, to see if they could join together in a coalition or some other method of agreement. The majority of the Cabinet supported this, and Heath duly entered into negotiations with Jeremy Thorpe over the weekend of the 1st to the 4th of March, but these negotiations ultimately foundered. The Liberal Party would not consider joining a coalition unless the Tories pledged to support electoral reform, a pledge which Heath could not agree to. Heath resigned on the 4th of March and Harold Wilson formed a minority government. Again, I feel it's just a very, a rather fascinating document. Um, the constitutional proprieties, you could argue, being observed by Heath calling a cabinet, I think he called two cabinets in this little gap before finally resigning. Just a couple more examples before we finish. 1976, Britain faced financial crisis. The Labour government, led by James Callaghan, was forced to apply to the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, for a loan of nearly $4 billion. And IMF negotiators insisted on deep cuts in public expenditure. Here we see the beginning of a memorandum by Tony Benn, Secretary of State for Energy, headed the real choices facing the cabinet. In this paper, Tony Benn had argued for an alternative strategy, a national recovery plan, reflation, import quotas, strong exchange controls and other measures. The cabinet debated this paper on December the 1st, 76, and according to Tony Benn's account in his diaries, Dennis Healy made it clear that he disagreed with the paper very early on. But Ben was given his opportunity to argue his case by Jim Callaghan, PM. And you can tell from looking at Ben's account that there was a lively discussion of the issues by the ministers present. The government did go ahead with acceptance of the loan and consequently there were increases in taxation and public spending cuts. The records, combined with personal accounts, can really build up a picture of how momentous decisions are arrived at. Final example. Mrs Thatcher led the Conservative Party to victory in the general election of May 79, arriving at Downing Street on the 4th of May. The Prime Minister opened proceedings at this meeting, which is on the 10th of May. She opened proceedings by stating that, since this was the first formal cabinet meeting of the new administration, it would be appropriate to take note of and record the conclusions reached at an informal meeting of cabinet ministers 
on the 8th of May. So, in fact, the new administration had had this little informal meeting of cabinet ministers on the 8th of May, but this was the first formal meeting of the cabinet. Point F from the minutes shown here makes clear the approach of the new administration to the size of the civil service. Freeze on civil service manpower. There will be an immediate freeze on recruitment to the civil service for a period. The cabinet recognised that there would have to be certain exceptions from the freeze in specific areas with the approval of departmental ministers concerned. During this period, ministers would undertake an urgent examination of functions to secure reductions in civil service manpower. The Lord President of the Council would bring forward to the Cabinet urgently proposals to this end. So this, of course, has resonance for the present day. Um, the Prime Minister's files for 1979, released at the end of 2009, show that the process of making cuts was not a smooth one. Certain ministers argued strongly for exceptions to be made with regard to their particular departments. But reductions did occur. In the Downing Street years, Margaret Thatcher states that by the 13th of May 1980, civil service numbers had been reduced from 732,000, which is where they stood in 79, to 705,000. So, in conclusion, I hope that the content of this talk has confirmed for you the importance of the Cabinet, which is at the centre of the British political system. As John McIntosh has written in his book, The British Cabinet, the importance of the Cabinet is that it reconciles, records and authorises. And it's the recording part of the equation, the records part of that. The records held by the National Archives, which give rich and revealing insights into the, into the decision-making process in government during the 20th century, and they will continue to do so as we go into the future. So if you're interested in modern history, I'd encourage you to make good use of that wonderful resource, the Cabinet Papers Online. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 7th of October 2010 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>